It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. A founder's journey has its highs and lows. It's not a linear path. Every founder is also a regular person, filled with high hopes and big dreams. That middle part of their story, before they reach the top, is where we can catch them at their fullest potential. What we learn of their past gives us a glimpse into their future. This is Founder Stories. Where there is art, there is a collector. Today's founder is a big name among the NFT space. And even though we don't know his real name, he's well-respected as an investor, an advocate, and a fan of digital art. With a background in investment management, online poker, and fantasy sports, this collector knows a lot about knowing how to play their cards right. But when they started collecting NFTs, they found more than just high risk, high reward. They found a family. This is the story of Anonymix. I go by the screen name Anonymix. I'm a big NFT collector, primarily in one ones one of the largest collectors on Super Rare. And just having a ton of fun doing this shit. Grew up in Western Pennsylvania, always big into sports, whether it was playing, watching Pittsburgh sports teams, Steelers, Penguins, Pirates. Grew up playing basketball, baseball, always was pretty good. Hit a growth spurt when I was in middle school. It was like six, five by the eighth grade and just started focusing on basketball. I just always wanted to win. And my dad played football in college, so he always exposed me to sports, and I just always wanted to be the best, or I didn't want to do it. I've always had a competitive drive surrounding most of this stuff that I've done, whether it be sports, board games, my family won't play Monopoly with me anymore. And I think the competition drive in me has always been there, and I just push it into whatever I'm doing into like overdrive. In college, I got a Division I basketball scholarship. It was a great experience, travel, camaraderie, but given my academic strengths, it was always a tough balance of academics and sports. At times was strenuous, almost felt like I had two jobs. The job that was paying for school, basketball, and the job of kind of going to school that was preparing me for my future. I studied investment management and finance, a double major. Got into stocks in the late 90s during the tech boom when I was in high school. Come home and I would see the closing bell on CNBC. 
and just seeing shit up 20, 30% that was IPO and that get my blood flowing at age 16, 17, 18. Never really had any doubt from there that, you know, when I was going to school, it was going to be finance trading. It happened organically. And as soon as I got some money in my pocket, I was trading. I was trading options in college. Didn't know what the fuck I was doing, but I was trading them. The first meaningful trade that I had, I bought the, the option for $250 and within 24 or 48 hours, it had doubled to $500. And man, I thought I was the shit, but we still had 30 days to expiration. And, you know, I could have taken it off right there for a fast double, but I was convinced it was going to double again. Fast forward to 30 days later, I held it to expiration and it expired worthless. My fast money became no money. That's one trade that I always remember, that things can go to zero, especially risky shit. I was probably a sophomore in college at the time, that trade specifically. And, you know, I just kept doing through my schoolwork. I really got value orientation beat into my head. You know, the Warren Buffett style. The first rule on investment is don't lose. Benjamin Graham style of value investing, fundamental analysis, which was the heart of the curriculum where I went to school. And it wasn't until my senior year in college where I met a professor that was a little bit more quant focused and momentum focused and trading focused that I realized there was multiple ways to kind of look at things. And that side of the equation resonated with me a lot more. By the time I was a senior in college, basketball was just a way to get a free education. I had done an internship at a major bank and I just knew that this is what I was gonna do going forward. I wasn't really sure of the best way to get started. My school wasn't necessarily a, what they call in finance, a target school. It wasn't an Ivy League, it wasn't a Stanford or a Duke. So that was a challenge in itself. Given that I didn't have a fast track to Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, my main goal was to get as much experience as fast as possible. And I had finally found a job in investment banking after working a couple years in the back office of a traditional bank. When I first got into investment banking, that's the first time I kind of moved out of my hometown of Pittsburgh. And that's when I look back feeling grown up for the first time. The hours were long, the pay was great. The more I did just grinding pitch books and things like that, I knew that I had to get to the trading side and investing side of the business as soon as possible. I was spending probably every waking hour outside of investment banking doing my own personal account and research and things like that. I just knew I had to move on. I had started putting together two, three page write-ups on investments and just cold emailing them to PMs that I would find at hedge funds and things like that. Never gained any traction, had some conversations, never led to anything. And my coworkers knew that I loved to trade. I'd be pitching them shit weekly. And they'd just be like, dude, I don't have any money. 23, what am I gonna do? Just by coincidence, one day, a coworker had mentioned to me that she knew of a family 
that was looking for a portfolio manager for their family office and said, hey, do you want to meet them? I said, absolutely. I think a week later, we went to lunch, had a nice chat, and one thing led to another. And despite not having any background managing other people's money, the family office took a chance on me at age 26 to run their fund. And it was probably the best decision of my life to go and do that. I had a various range of emotions. I had the high of knowing that this was the chance that I was looking for and actually happening now faster than I even expected, but also had the uncertainty of not only wondering if my skill set was good enough, but it was mid 2008 and the financial crisis was just beginning. I was so excited for this opportunity that I had a bonus payout coming in about a week or two, and I left it on the table to get started. I didn't want to lose the chance to manage money for a family office. It could be years before I had anything like that happen. I jumped head first into the family office, and it was a bootstrapped operation. The family had just recently moved from overseas. We started the office and operation from scratch. We were looking for office space together. We were building office furniture together. And there was two of us. The good news behind that was it probably took us a month, two months to really get started and cranking without putting any capital at risk. So that fast forwards us to like August of September and really big time markets in turmoil. I remember Lehman going under and B of A and Merrill merging on that weekend. And we had the benefit of still being in almost 100% cash. So while the whole world was freaking out, I kind of had the immaturity even of not being afraid that we started putting money to work in September, October of 2008 and quickly realized that with volatility so high, the option premiums were just massive. We decided to just do a relatively simple strategy of writing covered calls against our positions, but we were collecting three, four, 5% premium for calls, 10, 15% out of the money that were expiring in three weeks. Took on a lot of volatilities for those first two or three months. The premiums we were selling kind of made up for that. And then by January, February, we had all these securities that had a great cost basis that we were already into. And we were fully invested on the March bottom and had a hell of a year. A call option is the right to buy a stock at a certain price and they become more valuable as price rises. Our strategy was to sell those calls against stocks that we owned and created a income stream. It was very stressful because despite our reasonable success early and our reasonably well-capitalized position, I had no idea the turmoil would last three months, six months, two years. 
And I had no idea how to trade that environment. I had just left an investment banking job and I had went to work for a quote family office at Inception that got rid of me after six months, a year. My mind would wander to the downside. Yeah, that was really fucking stressful. It was clear that it was it was the right spot for me because one thing I've always been able to do in my life is use the stress. Once I get over that initial kind of apprehension of stress, I can really channel it and use it almost as fuel. I lock in more. I get even more all in because I've seen that the most successful investors are usually pretty concentrated. And that's not even just in finance. That's the person that starts a business has probably got a great majority of their worth tied to the upside of that business. As crazy as this sounds, if I'm not pushing it hard, whether it's with NFTs or stocks or crypto, that's when I get nervous. I have these X-Copy 101s that are up many multiples in less than a year. And I go home at Christmas time and my mom says, why don't you sell one? And I say, well, I would be more nervous having that in fiat than owning an X-Copy or just having it in E. Like, that's just where I've gravitated to. I jumped on with the family office in late June 2008, and I ended up being there for about four years. It was a great experience, a great learning experience. Uh, Two things were happening. My first daughter was about to be born, and I had now also accumulated enough capital that I could manage a PA for myself that I made the decision to move on from the family office and do my own thing. So I actually didn't know what I wanted to do when I left the family office. I didn't know if I wanted to maybe try and go to a large fund. At that time, just to kind of fill time, I pursued the CFA designation and I fortunately passed level one, two and three in succession. But it took me a good year or two to kind of figure out that I was gonna push forward really hard just trading my personal account for myself. I was already doing it to some extent that I kind of said, okay, can we really ramp this up and make it my profession? I'd always played online poker. The sites had just gotten shut down in the US and daily fantasy sites started popping up and started by a lot of my ex-poker acquaintances. Having played sports and still following sports, I jumped in and I quickly realized that there was a financial opportunity in fantasy sports, a significant financial opportunity. And in 2013, I was probably spending 90% of my time trading and about 10% of my time on fantasy sports. Over the next few years, that balance compressed flipped to the fact that I was spending by 2016, almost 100% of my time on fantasy sports, primarily focused in NFL and fantasy golf. Always had a casual interest in golf as a fan and a recreational player, 
relative to the other fantasy games that were offered, golf was an extremely inefficient game because there was no analysis sites dedicated towards it. There was not a lot of advanced analytics available that are out for NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL. I saw it as a major opportunity. Under a different alias, I was probably one of the biggest winning players from 2015 to 2019. And a majority of that came in fantasy golf. I think my best year was 2016. I ran insanely well. I had about a 60, 70% ROI on my buy-ins and I made seven figures plus. Typically to my style, I went all in. So from being a casual fan of golf, I was spending Thursday, Friday, Saturday watching golf, maybe 10 to 20 hours during Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, spending another 20 to 40 hours on research for the next coming week's tournament. As a sign of my commitment, I went from playing zero dollars of buy-ins to playing five figures worth of buy-ins on a weekend to playing six figures of buy-ins on a weekend. I was all in. In fantasy sports, there was a lot of acquaintances that I had known from online poker, whether it be chatting strategy with them or just recognizing their name from the two plus two message boards. And daily fantasy was probably the time where I think communities really started popping up on Twitter. It was much more easier to engage with people through DMs on Twitter or seeing what kind of content they were posting on Twitter versus navigating message boards or AOL Instant Messenger at the time we were using with online poker a lot. I built some online relationships with some close friends. And then one thing that Fantasy offered was they would have these live events for maybe the, the Fantasy Golf Championship or the NFL Fantasy World Championships, where it was the first time I had ever experienced putting real life faces to an online screen name. Anybody that's ever done that, it's always a unique experience. It's something that I still enjoy to this day, meeting close acquaintances from the NFT or crypto world for the first time. Just as I had acquaintances from online poker that kind of moved into the daily fantasy world, over the last few years, the edge has diminished in fantasy, given the amount of content available, given the increased rake that the sites are charging, that made the games overall more difficult, just as they've gravitated from online poker to Daily Fantasy, they've started to now gravitate from Daily Fantasy into crypto and NFTs. During my success in Daily Fantasy, I had started in 2017 allocating a percentage of my winnings to Bitcoin investments and continued to do that through the blow off top in late 2017 to the December 2019 lows. And by the time early 2021 came around, I had been fortunate enough to average myself into a rather large Bitcoin position. I remember it very clearly when I decided to dive into Bitcoin. <laughs> 
I had always been casually aware of it, probably since as early as 2011, 2012. August of 2017, Jamie Dimon, as he likes to do, came out shitting on Bitcoin. And I think the price might have been at 3,800 or 4K at the time. And I remember the price dropped down into the 2000s. And I had thought to myself, wow, that's great. Bitcoin is finally just, it's just finished. This, this, this is great. But then I quickly asked myself, why do I even care? I don't even know why it's good or bad. It was just sort of by osmosis. I mean, obviously, even to this day, kind of mainstream media has their own questions. I recognized that, but I didn't really do anything more. Fast forward a month later, I see the Bitcoin prices immediately came back to where it was before Jamie Dimon shit on it again. And then it clicked to me. It was like, why should I fight it anymore? Let's dive in. You know, so I did my first few hours of research and said, hey, you can buy a Bitcoin. And then I, one Bitcoin became seven Bitcoins. And as I like to do, I continued to kind of get down the rabbit hole and continued to kind of with each paper that I read or interview that I watched or podcast that I listened to, continued to have more and more increased conviction. During all this time, I had, my eye was always interested in art, primarily street art, which I began collecting in probably 2012. The first time I bought a piece of art, I can remember it. My wife is from Bangladesh and we had actually been in Bangladesh for our wedding ceremony. And there's some great art galleries there. And I remember seeing a piece, it was a pen and ink and it was a thousand dollars US. And I thought about that buy for five days. And finally I said, okay, we're gonna buy it. That was my first significant purchase. And from there, we had slowly dipped our toes into street artists like Gregory Siff, early Alec Monopoly, Alexander Maharis, and my favorite physical artist, D-Face. D-Face is a pseudonym of Dean Stockton, a British artist known for these massive murals all over the world. They're, they're in New York, they're in Vegas, LA, Sweden, Spain, UK. I started collecting his physical pieces and those pieces were my first, what I consider now significant art investments for $25,000, $50,000. And I basically continued to buy physical art until all of the walls in my house were filled. And at that point, kind of just took a pause because we had no place to put anymore. Fast forward a few years to 2021 when DeFace releases his first NFT. It was on Nifty Gateway and was a no-brainer for me that I was gonna buy the one-of-one. One. I did, I won the auction for the DeFace one-of-one. I had begun to look at NFTs a bit in early 2021 and I had just started doing my research and I had seen the prices things were selling for or actually appreciating towards. 
and I thought it was interesting. It wasn't until I saw a physical artist that I loved put something out that I knew that I had to buy it at any cost. That was just going to happen. And then once I had that, I just started digging in even further. One thing about buying art that I love is when I see it, my stomach literally burns. I have to have it. The first time I saw Deface, I had that feeling. The first piece that I bought was called No Joke. It's very Lichtenstein influenced with Bende Dots and D-Face's own interpretation of a comic book scene. I like to say it just hit me. And now NFTs hit me the same way. Before I bought my first NFT, all of the classic arguments against NFTs absolutely went through my head. Right click, save as, anybody can own it, you can't hang it on your wall, whatever it might be. The first time I bought something I loved, none of that stuff mattered. I felt it. I am the owner of this piece. And I enjoyed knowing that I was the owner of this piece. And any concerns that I might have had were quickly overcame. I chased some crap at the same time I was buying good stuff just for the monetary reward. Took me about a month or so to realize that I shouldn't buy things solely for the purpose of monetary appreciation because it leads me to be impatient holding them because I don't enjoy it. And I've tried to improve on that over time. And I think I've gotten pretty good at it of only focusing on things that I love. I've never owned a board ape. They were pitched hard to me, even at 20. And I said, this makes perfect sense. I don't like the art. I just don't. I connected with the, the 8-bit pixelized CryptoPunks art for whatever reason, but board apes never did. CryptoPunks are a collection of 10,000 algorithmically generated pixelated images that have various rarities. There are nine aliens, which are the rarest. An alien just sold for, I believe, 8,000 ether. There's 24 apes, there's 88 zombies, and from there, various different rarities, whether it be mohawks, gold chains, glasses. But they're credited as being one of the first NFT collections that had a community kind of rally around it. I just had the confidence that CryptoPunks were probably, if not the blue chip NFT, the best NFT that had the characteristics of liquidity, the ability to buy a lot of, that I kind of evaluated them as almost loosely a store of value within the NFT space. That I knew that I wanted an allocation of my crypto investment into the sector, that I thought that CryptoPunks would be the best and fastest way to get that exposure while I figured out the things that I do truly love. I had bought one CryptoPunk maybe in late March, had bought a second, got up to about four of CryptoPunks when I want to say it was mid-April, Thursday afternoon, announcement comes out that Christie's is auctioning a set of nine CryptoPunks. That's pretty real that this 
hundred plus year old institution is going to do this. That I had my four crypto punks. I said, now's the moment to press this. And within 30 minutes, I had spent somewhere between six and 800 ether buying 20 to 30 crypto punks. And I had three pages of notes that I had been aggregating for the last two months of all the punk numbers that I liked, the traits that I looked for, ones that I thought were fairly priced, that when the moment came to act, I didn't have to think about what I needed to do. It was just execution. I had the capital ready to go. I knew that I needed punk 144. And I just banged them, banged them, banged them, banged them, banged them, banged them. And I was ready to go. It's like a, just a complete dopamine ejection to your brain. The term that my good friend Tappy and I use when we buy something that we really love is we just say we're floating. Then there's usually a crash period where for a second you kind of second guess yourself like, holy shit, I just bought a bunch of cartoons for $3 million. But it's like com community validation. It's just like any market. It's real. Right before I had bought my first NFT, I had to obviously create an account on Nifty Gateway and the other platforms. I had this previous alias that I had used in online poker and even before that. And I had been about 20 years of using the same name. I used to go by the screen name Jet Black X, which is, I remember distinctly, Jet Black comes from Jet Black New Year, a song by my favorite band, Thursday. And I was signing up for a punk message board. Jet Black was taken. And I was like, oh, X is like really edgy. Like that's punk, whatever. So I just put Jet Black X. I had no plans of anything coming of it. Quite simply, I like, I had always liked the X at the end that I just dropped the S in anonymous and just called it Anonymix. And that's how I pronounce it, Anonymix. It was happened in a span of a minute. It was just like, okay, let's just go with this. I don't even think I changed my Twitter handle. I just had this screen name on all the NFT platforms. But as I started following other NFT collectors, I recognized the value in having people know who you are, whether it's people that are bidding against you in auctions or people that you, you know, hey, well, why did you buy this piece? There was a desire and need to talk to other people and collaborate that I changed my Twitter handle over to Anonymix as well. And I started retweeting the super rare bot when I would buy a one of one. People followed me. As I purchased more and more art, I got more and more followers. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Behind the alter ego, I'm still the same guy that I was. I'm just a much happier person that I've found all these friends that I've been looking for my entire life in NFTs. But I would say probably in August of last year, August of 2021, it kind of hit me that there's people that are out there financially acting on decisions that I'm making. As I mentioned previously, I had been accumulating Bitcoin for about four years and really almost 100% Bitcoin until I really got into NFTs. The first time I used Ethereum to buy an NFT, it was so easy. 
you actually use this stuff because BTC, I just bought more, bought more, bought more, and it just was there. Perfectly fine. Has a lot of value in that itself. But I was like, this actually is utility. I'm using it. And then as I got more and more NFTs and prices were moving, and on a daily basis, I would run the numbers on the portfolio and all the different conversions and stuff. I was so into this and I believe in it is like, why not denominate my life in ETH? It's so much easier that way for me at least. And I started doing it. And then the first time I took out a collateralized loan in DeFi with ETH as collateral, my head exploded. When you could theoretically borrow six figures in minutes without having to go to the bank and produce hard copies of shit and the headache. That was just mind blowing. And I think there's a long way to go to get people on board. I think that'll take time, but DeFi, just like art, it's sort of like my explanation when I bought the first NFT was, yes, I know the concerns, but once you feel it and you actually feel how much faster it is, whether you're talking about lending or buying, or you feel what it's like to actually have digital ownership. It's just different until you actually do it. I think a lot of it begins right at that spot where there's no friction between the artist and the collector. And they can build followings, whether it be through Discord or Twitter. It's a lot easier to build a following when you start out with, what, a dozen followers and you get to know them all at a personal level. And then a dozen becomes a hundred. And you've got the frictionless relationship then evolving into the frictionless transaction where you can do an addition of 100 and put it in the hands of 100 collectors simultaneously. Whereas even a, a physical print run of a hundred needs to get mailed. It needs to be processed through fiat, probably a dozen other moving pieces. Those are a couple big points. I think from the artist's perspective, the NFTs typically have a built-in 10% royalty stream on resales, which does not happen in the physical art market. In some ways, I think that also helps artists build a business because they now have two revenue streams. It's really tough because, I mean, I see things that I don't like that have tremendous momentum and tremendous success. I have artworks that I own that I say to myself, I cannot believe this artist isn't so much bigger. It speaks to how fast things move. We're talking about what breaks a collection in the real art world. I mean, I don't think anything can be broken in eight months, but we're in just this hyper speed now. We're evaluating the success on a single piece or a single collection in days or maybe a month. For example, Capsule House by Searlight and Aksami and Kejuni. Searlight's a massive one-of-one -one artist. June is building a massive following, but they came out in, Capsule House came out in September of last year, and they basically sat at like 0.2 Ethereum for four months. And I'm guilty of it too. Within my circles, we're like, man, Capsule House, I can't believe it. they got such a great team. The art is cool. It just never took off. The flip get, just gets switched. And then all of a sudden, 0.2 becomes 
0.4 becomes one Ethereum and one becomes two becomes three. And in a span of four weeks, after doing nothing for four months, the collection has 10x. And I think there could be more stories like that. There's going to be stories of things that we think are probably a success right now that might not end up being a success. But I just come back to the fact that if I'm buying the stuff that I love or really, really like or believe in the artist behind or some piece of it that I can latch on to, it's a lot easier to be patient with. Whereas if I thought it was going to be fast money or a fast return and then it isn't, I want that shit out of my wallet ASAP and I want to move on to something else. Claire Silver's an anonymous digital artist who has made a pretty rapid ascent. One of the most genuine people that I've ever met in person. And she mentioned this quote, this year I've made the friends that I've been looking for my entire life. Just like pieces of art hit me, that quote basically summed up everything I love about NFTs. That was one piece that I never got in all of my other ventures to this point. Really, really deep friendships. And, you know, I, I can't even put it into words. I've met some very important people through NFTs, whether known in real life or anonymous that been, have been pretty cool. Like people that I never imagined interacting with. And the thing that I love about it is, more so than anything else I've ever been involved in, is welcomeness, where there's no, doesn't matter where you went to school or how long you've done this for. Where did I go from here? I just want to keep collecting. I just want to keep building relationships. And you never know what's going to happen. I was talking to Kazamo de Medici, an anonymous art collector, and he was talking to me about the difference between finite games and infinite games. Finite game is like a sporting event. There's gonna be a winner and a loser at the end of the day. An infinite game, though, you might not be trying to win every step of the way. And I kind of relate that into there's deals where maybe I've overpaid for, but it's part of the big picture. So I'm just playing the infinite game. I don't know what comes next, but I'm hoping that I continue to make the right choices. It continues to evolve because I don't even know what's going to happen next with NFTs, to be honest. But I do know that I'm buying things that I love and I've never been happier. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media and is hosted by me, Meshlakani. Thank you to Anonymix for sharing your story with us. For more about Anonymix, follow him on Twitter at Anonymix2311. That's at A-N-O-N-Y-M-O-U-X-2311 on Twitter. This episode was produced and mixed by Stephanie Horton and Ramsey Yunt with our senior producer, Olivia Briley. Our assistant producer is Haas Nasser. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. And of course, we appreciate you sharing this with your friends and subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time.